I'm Rob Wolf, and welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm your host, and I'm also author of The Alternate Universe, a novel about kids on a time travel adventure. And don't forget, you can listen to past podcasts on iTunes and our website, newbooksinsciencefiction.com. Today, we turn to some news I've been excitedly waiting for, the nominations for the Philip K. Dick Award. Last year, some of my favorite interviews were with nominees for the award. So as soon as the nominations came out this month, this month being January as I record this, I reached out and set up interviews with a bunch of nominees. And today, I bring you one of those nominees, Douglas Lane, who is nominated for his novel, After the Saucers Landed, published by Nightshade Books. After the Saucers Landed is his second novel. His first was Billy Moon. Douglas is also a short story writer and the publisher of Zero Books, which publishes books in philosophy and political theory and a bunch of other things. And he even hosts his own podcast, Zero Squared. So maybe he can share a few best practice tips with me today about the art of podcasting. Thanks for joining me today, Douglas. Hey, thanks for having me on. And, you know, you sound so good. I, I, I would be uh, hesitant to offer you any tips. Oh, well, thank you very much. But I'm sure yeah. you I'm, I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure we could probably share a few things with each other, a few little yeah. war stories, at least. Yeah, you didn't say um or uh at all. It was amazing. So you, good job there. Ah, thank you. <laughs> now that you said that, they'll start coming out of me. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I, I want to congratulate you on your nomination for the Philip K. Dick Award. Oh, well, hey, thank you very much. I was uh, kind of surprised and very pleased. And what do nominations do for writers, do you think? Do you think they help sales? They get you more attention? I do think they help sales a bit um, and get you more attention. Uh, I mean, I don't think it will make a, a hugely lasting difference, but I think that certainly for the week or two after the nominations announcement came out, the book was selling better than it had been in the months before. So, um, yeah, it was very helpful that way. Uh, for me, the main thing is just simply to be uh, in the running for an award with Philip K. Dick's name on it. Of all the the uh, science fiction and fantasy awards that there are, the only one that I ever actually really thought I'd like to have would be this one, and, and it's mostly just because I'm uh, a fan of Philip K. Dick's work. Well, I have to say, I mean, the books they pick seem to have uh, be really rich in ideas and really interesting books. I mean, they kind of think out of the box, so to speak, which is, of course, a phrase that isn't really out of the box anymore. Since <laughs> everyone uses it, but yeah. but certainly unusual choices. So I was really looking forward to seeing who they nominated because I knew they would be really interesting books for me to read. And I suggest uh, listeners also pick them up and would be an interesting collection of authors to interview. Yeah, I, after I got nominated, I looked at the um, Wikipedia page for the Philip K. Dick Award, and I was really, you know, that much more impressed and, and pleased to have been nominated at all. Uh, if you look back through the history of the award, some really great writers, you know, far better than myself, and uh, and uh, anyway, uh, that's all I'll say is that um, have been nominated and won, and like people like Rudy Rucker, for instance, and uh, William Gibson, and, and just. I think significant writer, so I'm I am extremely pleased. You are in excellent company, I can say. Yeah, yeah. So I see that Zero Books, which is your publishing house, the where you work is a, not the that Zero Books didn't publish your book, but that's where you are the publisher. Um, specializes in publishing philosophy books, and I wasn't surprised to see that because after reading After the Saucers Landed, there is a lot of uh, references to philosophy in it. 
Yes, there are, there are quite a few references to philosophy in the in the uh, After the Saucers Landed book, and um, some of them very outright and obvious. Some of them a little bit veiled. Uh, one of the negative reviews of my book um, said that they found the references to be a little overbearing at times, or uh, I think it said something like, "Oh, come on, man!" <laughs> that was the, the quote from the reviews. Like I, I found the reference to Descartes and. Close the book and and slam my head on my desk or something like that. But it's not. I, I hope that the the references for those who like philosophy and like to be puzzled um, will will be enjoyable. They're they're at times meant to be kind of funny. The references. Well, why don't we explore a little bit some of them? But maybe first you can tell listeners just a bit about the book. You know, what are they going to find when they pick it up? And you know, of course, talk a little bit about the aliens who who seem a bit like Las Vegas entertainers, at least at the very beginning of the book. Right. Well, the book is called After the Saucers Landed, and it's a story of what happens to a ufologist and his co-writer or his ghostwriter um, after, the, after the UFOs actually land. And the surprising thing right off the bat is that the ufologist is rather depressed about uh, the outcome because... The aliens are, as you describe, a bit kitschy, and what it what really turns out to be the case with them is, I mean, at least at the at the outset, is that they are uh, fulfilling a prophecy of one of his rivals, another ufologist, who everyone took t- to be a hoaxer, uh, but it turns out was telling the truth about these um, Nordic type aliens from the star system, the Pleiades, and and uh, you know they arrive on schedule with uh, some new age philosophy and a and start up a five hundred one three C on Earth. Right. So, they wear they wear like white jumpsuits and have sequins and uh, and they fly what look kind of like traditional not traditional but sort of classic nineteen fifties sci fi B movie saucers. Right. And all of that, by the way, is taken from actual UFO, UFO lore. I mean, it's taken from the fifties contactee. Uh, stories that exist, and particularly Billy Myers, uh, who's a, a an obvious hoaxer from the fifties. So I sort of based the UFOs that landed on Billy Myers' uh, stories a bit. And so, and the the ufologist who is the uh, initial predictor of this is named Charles Rain. So I assume that there's a connection between Rain and your last name Lane. And I don't know if that was just playful or if there was something deeper there you were trying to get at. Um, I don't know either, ah. I, but, but my first name is Charles, actually. I'm Charles Douglas Lane, but I go by Douglas Lane. So yeah, that's my name in the book. And yeah, I, I, I think that, um, well, the, the, he was in, in the book, he's the author of the UFO story that comes through Charles Rain. Right. So. Okay. But so then interestingly, the, the narrator, as you say, is the ghostwriter for this other ufologist, Harold Flint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess his name is Brian. Is that right? His name, he is, it doesn't really come up very much, uh, his name. No, uh, his name, but it is Brian. Yeah. And maybe you could talk a little bit about him because he's one of these narrators who, as a reader, you know, there are clues that you start to think, well, maybe he's not a reliable narrator. What's going on with him? Um, and that seems to be one of the issues you're exploring, both both plot-wise and f- through the philosophical issues that you're exploring. Yeah, well, Brian has an interesting relationship with Harold, the man he's uh, doing um, the writing these books with. And it all stems around 
a possible abduction experience that happened at a UFO conference before the, uh, no, yeah, no, I'm trying to remember my own book now, but no, before the book starts. So in any case, yes, that, that character is not a reliable character. And, and one of the things that happens in the book is that characters turn out to be unreliable in general. In fact, one of the powers, I guess, that the, the UFO people have, the Pleiadians have, is they, they can make people confused about their identity or, or most often they make them swap identities. So you'll go to a party, say, um, and if, if a Pleiadian is there, he might decide he'd rather you be the host of the party rather than the guest and he'll just have you switch places with the host and no one will really notice. That's the power that they have. You'll, you know, strip down, change clothes and just take on that persona, maybe altering it a bit to suit your, your needs, but fitting into the, to the world as this other person. Right. Um, and, pe and people will go on it. Apparently just for, that's it. They just change and then they go on for the rest of yeah. apparently their lives or, or, I mean, at least as portrayed in the book uh, right. as that new identity. And they don't seem to really, they aren't really aware that they've made that switch. There are a couple of characters who become aware of it, but but for the most part, no. That's that's which happens, and people aren't aware that they've they've changed identity. And and the reason I wrote this book that way was because there's philosophical theory about identity being a performance. So, uh, which is is uh, popular in critical theory circles and feminist theory circles, and uh, I I wanted to explore what the ramifications of that idea would be if taken literally. Um, so that's, this is how I came up with, with that. And do you sort of play out with what the, what the underlying motive of the aliens are? I mean, are they, at, at times it feels like they're just being instructive, yet there's hints of something nefarious and without, I suppose, ruining the story, I wonder if you can explore like this sense that they're both quite sort of innocent and playful and kitschy. And yet there's something sinister that seems to be going on as well. Uh, you know, I, all I'll say is that I am not sure at the end of having written the book if the aliens – because at one point in the book you might recall that an alien switched place, places with a human right. identities. And that, that went off without a hitch. So the difference between a human and an alien is all about – is a performance. So – there's something messed up about reality in this book more than it's not the aliens per se that are the problem. It's the whole the, the whole book is a mess, basically. Yeah, there's something wrong with the reality of the book. Well, it made me think of that when I don't really fully understand it, but I hear mention of it sometimes that perhaps the whole universe is actually a hologram and it's, you know, there's some I don't know if it's a mathematical formula or something on the surface of the universe and we're all just projections. And it kind of made me think of a world like that that's really purely, uh, that feels substantive but maybe really isn't. It's just somehow uh, an idea. And I like those things. I like those things even though I'm not sure what to do with them when I'm, I'm commuting to work and I'm sitting on the train and I'm like, man, this feels awfully real to me and yet maybe it isn't. Well, if we all are holograms, uh, you know, on the surface of a, of a 2D universe um, just projected out uh, and that's all there is, then what do you mean when you say it feels real but isn't? I mean, it just turns out that your understanding of what reality is is a little bit off. You know, your experiences aren't matching what's really there, but that doesn't mean that uh, you're not real. 
just means you're not real in the way you thought you were. You, you know, we used to believe that uh, that oh, that when we saw looked at the world, our eyes were sending out some sort of energy and scanning the world rather than receiving light. You know, but it turns out we were wrong. It doesn't mean that we weren't seeing the world. It just means we didn't see the world the way we thought we did. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's a good that's a good analogy. Well, as an author, if you're writing perhaps a, a world where the reader and even the, the narrator, the protagonist who's narrating the story, is beginning to question what they're seeing and feeling, did that pose special challenges uh, to invent this world? Because, you know, you, you were trying to reveal to the reader this kind of uncertainty over time. And I wonder if that posed, uh, you know, it wasn't a direct exposition of what the narrator was necessarily seeing and doing. Uh, things had to be disclosed to the narrator as well. And um, I wondered, uh, as an author, what kind of challenges that poses? It, it did pose some challenges in order. To, the big challenge is to try to take sometimes abstract ideas and philosophical concepts and bring them to life in a story while not losing any of their complexity or very little of the, you know, trying to at least get the core of, the, of an idea that maybe comes from Descartes or comes from Judith Butler or wherever it comes from. You try to get that into the book without losing anything or simplifying it too much or, or obscuring it too much. At the same time, keeping the book sensuous and alive and, and, and uh, believable as a story and not that, not too didactic. And that would, that's a tricky thing. And I, I'm glad that I got nominated for an award because it makes me feel like maybe I pulled it off better than I originally thought I did. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's tricky. The, the part about communicating the sense of unease or, um, kind of the paranoia, paranoia that comes with these ideas, that wasn't tricky. Uh, I've spent far too much of my life in that kind of state. So it comes natural to me to write about that feeling. So, got it, got it. Well, you conveyed that well. Did you consult with philosophers? I mean, were you were you engaged in debates with people that sort of mirror, you know, some of the discussions that take place in the book? You know, testing out your ideas with with people who are conversant in in some of the concepts that you your your characters are involved in. That's a tricky it's tricky to answer. I didn't consult with any philosophers specifically for this book but I should point out that there were people who influenced the book who I, I've sometimes talked to and sometimes haven't uh, like a philosopher who's been influential uh, just in general and on me would be Slavoj Žižek and some of his ideas were maybe influencing the way I wrote the book um, the people who are part of Fluxus which is an art movement that I actually mentioned in the book um, certainly have written and I've read some of their writing and um, influenced the book. Uh, so there's a lot of influences there. And I've debated with people online. Who doesn't debate online? And I debate philosophical things online, you know, in the typical way. So that maybe is influencing the book as well, but not as purposefully. <laughs> so. And I guess you, you work with philosophers as a publisher of books as well. Yeah, I do now. Uh, I've been doing that for the last year. So I was finishing this book and starting the job at Zero Books around the same time. And I'm, I'm a freelance publisher at Zero Books, which means I, I read the, the slush that comes in and try to also um, 
bring in you know uh, books as well that I uh, that I that I want rather than just reading the slush boy why is that word it not I commission works there you go <laughs> as well so um, that's been a lot of fun and that's been very interesting and has put more philosophy books and critical theory books in front of me than than even I was reading before and do, do you think working to having that role of someone who's who's um, judging other people's work or commissioning works affects you as a writer, sort of informs your writing? And, and well, I guess you're saying you finished the book when you started uh, in this role. Yeah, I, I'll have to find out. You know, I'm going to write, I hopefully will write another book uh, soon now, and um, I'll find out. But it does change the way I think about publishing. Uh, at this point now, the aura of, of greatness or whatever around publishing has really been stripped away. I've seen how the sausages are made. And so, I, I mean, I think it's a, a, a great thing to be involved in, but um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm worried I may be even harder for publishers to work with now that I've done, done some publishing than I was before, and I wasn't always easy. So, oh, well, uh, what have you what have you learned that would impact your relationship with with your next publisher? Just that we're not that great. The, the publishers are not uh, always going to be the best readers it's different on different days of the week that you can easily miss things um that sometimes uh, often enough especially in this case often enough the authors are a lot smarter than i am so and yet i'm the one who's judging their work so i mean there's there's also i know sort of uh what goes into making the decision to buy work and it's not always about what's the best work it's some it's uh, sometimes a judgment about what the market will accept and what you think will sell and these are, you know, sometimes like we've gotten books that are on very obscure subjects that um, probably have a lot to say and provide, would provide a reader with a lot of really important even information. But because the information is not already in people's minds, uh, we've passed on some things. And, you know, it was just a hard call. Um, so anyway, but yeah, that's what I figured out and working publishing. And I guess it's also an industry that's very much in in flux or in fluxus. I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah. It must be interesting, at least, to be to be sort of in the midst of uh, in a field. But I mean, as a writer, but then also working as a publisher and editor. Yeah. Trying to trying to adapt and stay afloat as the technology changes and the market seems to change almost daily. Zero books is sort of a product of this flux of in in publishing. We are. Um, you know, an international publish, publisher. There is uh, there are only four people who actually go to work in an office in London. It's a British press, but then there are all these different, like thirty eight different imprints of for which Zero Books is one, um, and they live all around the world. <laughs> you know, so all of it's done online, and uh, all of our communication is done online. All the submissions come in that way. A lot of the books are sold as eBooks. They're printed on different continents. It's just an amazing time to be in publishing. It's not at all the same industry that it was 15 years ago. After the Saucers Landed is set primarily in, in New York, which is familiar to me because that's where I live. But I know that you live in Portland now. And so I wonder just about your own personal journey. I mean, had you lived... Uh, Presumably, the way you wrote about New York, you you clearly lived here at one point. I have not ever lived in New York. I've been there a few times. 
and I used uh, you know Google <laughs> Maps to figure out things. And uh, I I love New York City, and um, I would love to live there sometime. But uh, well, I'm not. well done to the point of the of your book, I guess that it's all. It's all a show, you know. It's all uh, it's it's theater, you know. You you created a created the effect of of being an author who who has lived here and knows New York personally. Oh, great! Well, I'm glad to to pull that off. I wrote a, the first book I wrote was about Paris, right? And I have not lived in Paris. I've been there far less often than I've been to New York, but but uh, yeah. So I really sweated about that about writing about. French culture and, and about Paris and um, have not had the fortune to have a, a French audience in judge of the work yet. It came out in Poland in the United States. So uh, we'll see if it ever comes out in France. So tell me just about your journey as a, as a writer interested in science fiction. Often it starts in childhood, you know, people are interested, but tell me about your, your relationship to science fiction. Well, I didn't I wasn't interested in writing science fiction per se in childhood, but I was interested in science fiction in childhood. I was a, a fan of, well, of Star Trek. <laughs> I'm one of those people. And also um, in just the idea of space travel and uh, of being visited by aliens is always something that I was very interested in. In the early 90s, I became really fascinated with the idea of being visited by aliens and read a lot of Robert, Robert Anton Wilson and may have done some things that were at the time illegal. Uh, <laughs> oh, like like what? Are they still illegal? Is the statute of limitations no, no, on them? And well, can... it's, been, it's being legalized in different states. Ah, uh, the, 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 the The pot. And <laughs> smoke uh. pot and, and read Robert Anton Wilson and think about spacemen um and then I as i got I thought older, it had to do with like abductions or things i don't know why no 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 been, no yeah. no it's mostly just fantasizing about uh you know green little green men mm -hmm. and uh, and i read a lot of, of material about ufos uh, at that point um but it wasn't until around 95 when i went to clarion that i really decided i wanted to write science fiction per se and um it was right around that time when someone said, you know, when you're writing stories about UFOs and time travel, you're actually writing science fiction. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess I am. So I went to Clarion. But I had been submitting to literary magazines only and not not thinking about genre writing until that, that time. But the um, fact that you went to Clarion, you know, which is uh, specializes in science fiction writing, well, that clearly you, you, you had made that decision, I guess, to, to delve deeper into that. Yeah, I wanted to have a career as a writer, and this uh, a friend of mine who had been published in like Asimov's and those kinds of places of uh, Universe, um, which was a pretty well established anthology in the late '80s and early '90s. Uh, he told me, he said, "Doug, you're not just a literary writer. You're not the, the next Bukowski or whatever. You you should go and write some science fiction stories." So I did. And uh, I enjoyed it a lot, I, but it was interesting to go to Clarion because I was one of the few people there who wasn't like uh, going into full on fan mode when the authors came in to teach us because mm. <laughs> I was, uh, I mean, I later on read them and felt, oh my God, why wasn't I more impressed? But I hadn't really read, say, like Howard Waldrop um, before I went to Clarion and then afterwards I read him and realized what a genius he was. But 
And did that affect you think your your learning? You think you're more open and sort of more neutral in, in absorbing information and, and less blinded by the the fame or fan worship? Oh I you know, I don't know. I was twenty four and and uh <laughs> I, I think I I'm not sure how how it helped me or not. I it's a, it was a while ago. But um I do know that I've always been sort of on the outside, half half in, half out of of the genre, and I'm not sure if that's helped me or not. Where are you headed next with your next project? Have you started something? I have an idea for another novel, and I have a book that I'm writing for Zero Books, which was actually commissioned before I started working there, but I've yet to finish, about philosophy and Hegel and Star Trek, which I need to write. Um, but my next novel, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I may, depending on how well this Philip K. Dick Award helps the book sell, I may go back to uh, Nightshade with another book idea. And I have a title for it, but I won't tell you what the book's about. But the title, working title right now, is called Bash, Bash Revolution. It's got a good sound to it. certainly intriguing. You know, we didn't actually talk uh, about your podcast. Um, oh, okay. I mean, you if want you want to say a little bit about that, sure. is that something? Did you did you start the Zero Squared podcast? Has that been yours? And is it connected? Yeah. It's connected specifically to to Zero Books. It is connected to Zero Books. the The Zero Squared podcast is interesting because I started doing a philosophy podcast actually in two thousand nine. And it was called something else. It was called Diet Soap. <laughs> Don't ask me why. That name is stupid, but it, it dates back to the 90s. But anyhow, you think so of washing your mouth out with soap, but I guess it's Diet Soap, so you don't get fat from doing it? The idea was it's a, it was a comment on commodity culture that I thought was clever in 1992 when I had a zine by the same name. And so it's Diet Soap is a product nobody needs. Right. Perfect. Yeah. So, but anyhow, so Diet Soap was a podcast and I did that for about five years. And then when I got hired at Zero Books, I said, well, listen, why don't I bring my, this podcast I'm doing into the fold as another part of what I'll be doing for Zero Books. And, and so largely I've kept doing the same podcast, only now about half the time I'm interviewing authors at Zero Books. Not all the time. About about half, and it's it's people. I, I talk about economics and philosophy and culture and art on that podcast, and I've had some great people. It's amazing I, how many people will actually talk to me <laughs> because of a podcast, which I would have no excuse to talk to them otherwise. Um, so it's been great that way. It's fantastic. And how? Um, what kind of preparation do you do? Do you, if you have someone who's written a book, for instance, do you read the whole book? I mean, this is always my challenge, and I always try to. Uh, people always tell me, "Oh, but you don't need—you don't need to, Rob. You can just, you know, skim it and just, you know, ask a few targeted questions." But I find it hard to do because well, you're interviewing fiction writers, right? Right. And so it's a little different. I, the people I'm interviewing are nonfiction writers, and so I don't like what I will do if it's a zero books author whose book I've commissioned or you know published, then. I've read the book, but if um, if it's a uh, someone who uh, I haven't, you know, someone outside that that loop, and for years before, 
I would find a chapter that I wanted to talk to them about, or I'd find a, a, an essay that they had written. Sometimes I'd just talk to a blogger about a blog post, or I'd we'd talk very generally about the history of philosophy, depending on what their expertise was. But I wasn't, because I do it weekly. Is this weekly? Do you do? No, I usually do one a month, sometimes twice a month. Yeah, so mine's weekly. I've, I just couldn't read a, uh, a book for the podcast. every. I guess I could have if it was all I was doing or if I was more committed. But um, no, I don't tend to read the entire book for every podcast. But I do try to find a chapter that I think that I can focus on. Well, I admire you for that because I would like to do more and I enjoy the conversation. But I guess it's, I do kind of think, I, well, that's just my issue. I try to, I do try to read the whole book. And usually I find it gratifying, too. It's fun to do. So Yeah, I think if I did mostly full, uh, mostly fiction, like novels and things, I, I would want to read the whole book, too. Because it's harder to interview, um, it's harder to, to, to interview fiction writers than it is to, to interview nonfiction writers, I think. Oh, well, that's good to know. I hadn't even thought of that. So good. I'm doing something harder. That makes me feel It, it really, I, from my experience, well, my experience with fiction writers is that they don't know what their books are really trying to do exactly. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, but that's the that's good, right? I mean, you know, a lot of it's working on the un, on, on the uh, unconscious, the creative stuff that comes out, and the connections that they make in their writing, and the um, so it's hard. It is hard to talk about, right? But it makes it harder for an interviewer to. You have to be more like a psychotherapist than than just a straight ahead interview interviewer. You know, you have to try to pull ideas out of them. And a lot of times fiction writers are very reluctant to explain anything because they've written this book and that should explain everything. And, but if you're a nonfiction writer, if you're writing a book of philosophy, you you have all these little arguments that you want to make. And, this, you know, so you're very quick to summarize and you're, you have no problem with any of that. Well, now you make me want to switch to nonfiction. I want, I want an easier job. Oh, sorry, it's all filled up in the realm. No more podcasts about philosophy. Oh, uh, darn it. Oh, well. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, thank you, uh, Doug Lane, for yeah. joining me on New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I really appreciate uh, your taking the time. Good luck uh, with the Philip K. Dick Award. Yeah, well, it was great talking to you. So I've been speaking with Doug Lane, who is the author of After the Saucers Landed. Uh, he's also so a publisher with zero books. He's a podcaster and short story writer as well. And in the uh, coming weeks and months, I hope to be interviewing more of the uh, nominees for the Philip K. this year's Philip K. Dick Award. Don't forget, you can like us on our Facebook page and you can listen to our podcast on iTunes and other podcasting sites. And you can visit us at www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com. I am Rob Wolf, your host. And uh, you can follow me at Rob Wolf Books on Twitter. And thank you for listening.